Hairy London by Stephen Palmer. Prologue. Fine blonde hair growing on Waterloo Bridge makes it impassable. The young man, trapped by a rampant beard on the southern banks of the river, looks to the stanchions on the northern side that were once grey stone, but which now are her suit. He cannot see how he will cross, but he must, because the hair beneath his feet is so luxuriant he's in danger of sinking into it, drowning, smothering in that yellow tide. In his pocket he finds a rope with a grapnel on the end, and this he uses to haul himself up to the thinly haired bridge parapet. Like a monkey on a branch, he moves along the parapet, slipping on clumps of hair, ducking when the wind gusts, almost losing his balance, but not quite. In ten minutes, he's on the northern side. He leaps down into the mass of blonde hair that waves in the breeze coming up Victoria Embankment. The locks cover him to waist level. With no alternative, he begins forging his way towards High Hoban, where he has an engagement. There were so many horseless carriages outside the suicide club that Cheremy Pantomile found himself pushing between lamp-black stained running boards, so that, to his horror, his trousers became blemished below the knee. He clicked his fingers at the doorman and shouted, Gentlemen, find me a passage between these smoking wrecks or I'll have you cashiered. Gentleman Smythe adjusted his turban, glanced this way and that, then descended to street level. My apologies, sir. There is talk of one of our explorers returning from furthest oriental reaches. It seems that news has spread. Just find me a way in, fellow. Then find me new trousers. I take a 34-inch waist. Gentleman used his rear to nudge aside one of the horseless carriages, allowing Cheremy to squeeze through, then led him up the steps and inside the great marble edifice that was the hall of Bedwood's house, Chancery Lane. Cheremy hurried into an antechamber, not wanting any of his peers to see his embarrassment. A gentleman followed. I will go at once to the trousery, the doorman said then return with a fresh garment. What colour, sir? Same as these, and don't go, run. Gentleman bowed. Cheremy waited, his annoyance fading as the sounds and smells of the suicide club calmed his mind. This was home. Here he could be at peace, be free from the noise and stink of London, and here he could exercise his talents in the service of his fellow men. Damn! That seekish fellow was taking his time. At last, as the belladonna clock struck nine, and then a few seconds later the great Tibetan dinner gong, gentlemen returned. 
Cherami whipped off his trousers, adjusted his leather undergarment, then put on the clean trousers. Excellent, he said, though they smell of lavender. We use it to drive away moon moths, gentleman explained. What's on the menu tonight? A devil tatter of yaksa. Cherami departed, hurrying up the stairs that led to the dining room. Before entering it, he checked his appearance in the mirror, held upright by the statue of Turkman High, retrieved from the ruins of Constantinople by Faraday Lemington. Aha! Tall, dark-eyed, black hair slicked down, a subtle moustache on his upper lip. No wonder the girls loved him. He walked into the dining room and at once saw several of his associates seated at a pentagonal table, one chair free. He strode forward. Friends, he said, allowing a servant to pull back the vacant seat. You are a minute late, said Velvine Orchardtide, examining a gold chronospiel that hung from his waistcoat spigot. An unpleasantness outside the building. Cherami explained, caused by news of some import, or so I believe. Cornucope Weatherby sat to his left. Faraday Lemington, by all accounts, the old man said. Cherami did not feel inclined to forgive the explorer Lemington his fame. Damn well spoiled my trousers, he said. I'll be billing the fellow regardless of how much he's lionized when he returns. If he returns... Velvine remarked. There's no definite word. Cherami glanced at the other two diners. Sir Hosley Fane, white-bearded treasurer of the Suicide Club, and Lord Blackenor of Highgate, the secretary. He enjoyed exalted company tonight. Frankly, he said, lighting a cigaroon, I'm getting rather tired of dear Lemmington's comings and goings. Can't we find a higher calling than shooting exotic animals and returning them to London? A few embarrassed titters rose from the table. Sir Hosley sniffed, then said, What did you have in mind, mon ami? Oh, just something better, I suppose. Then you must think of something, said Velvine, glancing again at his chronospiel. Where is that soup, eh? It's Arctic onion. And if they do not bring it soon, it'll go warm. This place goes to hell if Faraday's around, Cherami muttered. It's just not good enough. Sir Hosley shrugged, the ghost of a smirk on his face. Complain to Genevieve, he said. Cherami scowled. All here knew of his feelings for Lady Bedwards, though he had done his utmost over the years to conceal them. Sir Hosley was an impudent weasel. Very good, he said. Meanwhile, perhaps you should comb your beard before the birds start nesting in it. Now, now, said Lord Blackenor. The soup arrives. As he cracked the surface of the soup and began cutting it up, Jeremy's mind turned to the situation he found himself in, which some might call unfortunate, though he termed it unjust. You see... He explained, I didn't know she was married. I swear I didn't know. How could I? She was just a freed slave, little more than a maid. Who'd have thought her husband would be so well connected? It seems you protest too much, Sir Hosley observed. Yes, they all knew the tales here. He hated that. 
When people discovered his failings, he hated it. He loathed being talked about. Pushing aside his empty bowl, he said, You all think you know me, don't you? You don't. Only a lover truly knows their lover. There came laughs from the other four. Well, we certainly all know you, Pantomile, said Velvine. Alas, rather too well, Sir Hosley added. Tout me déçoit. Charmy felt his face flush. He'd gone too far, spoken out of turn. You are buffoons, he said. Rather a buffoon than a love-struck bumpkin, said Sir Hosley. Charmy felt his embarrassment turn to anger. You've never married, have you? he said, staring across the table. Perhaps that is because you prefer the monocle post. Enough! Lord Blackenor cried. Enough, please, all of you. We diminish ourselves with this horse banter. Cheremy nodded at his associate. Thank you, he said. But you will admit it's true. Nobody here knows love. Mankind does not know love. It doesn't even have an explanation yet. We live in pandemonium because of that lack. Then you have your higher calling, Velvine said. What do you mean? Explaining the inexplicable. My dear fellow, Jeremy said, those long mornings you spend bathing have done something to your mind. Velvine shrugged. Explain it for us and you will both solve the inequities of your life and do mankind a service. Jeremy felt he was being mocked by the urbane orchard tide, whose family were well-known eccentrics. I won't humor you, he said. I mean it. Jeremy sat back. The Devil Jack supper was approaching. Then we'll have a wager, he declared. All of us sitting here at this table, if one season from today, one of us returns to the suicide club with an explanation of human love that mankind from east to west can accept, they will take the pot. The pot, said Sir Hosley. Jeremy took a notelet from his pocket then an inker from the slate hedgehog in the centre of the table. I wager ninety-nine hundredths of my fortune, he said. He cast the notelet onto the tablecloth. There, I have signed it. If you men have courage, if you have vision, if you take me seriously, then you'll be part of this wager. Sir Hosley snorted. I will not. That's because you're an oaf, sir. Oh, I also will not, Jeremy said nothing. I shall take part, Velvine said. You intrigue me, Pantomile, but also, I must confess, I find myself short of funds, as usual, and so am tempted by this wager. Cornucope cleared his throat. I am also tempted to wager, but there is an obvious problem. We're all men. Women are not allowed in the suicide club. Sir Hosley said. Indeed, they are allowed in this building only because it's owned by a woman. Cornucope said, Then I will join the wager on one condition, that my wife, Eustatia, stands at my side. You'll work as a pair? Yes, Jeremy considered. The wager had already outstripped its humble beginnings. 
Cope was a philosopher and likely new methods, if not actual answers, to the conundrum of love. As for Velvine, he was half madman. Too late! He had thrown his fortune into the ring. Very well, he said, but we need to fetch your wife to sign the papers. At this, Lord Blackenor said, There is a codicil in the rules of our club, allowing a woman to appear if she has a cloth bag over her head. I believe Gentleman Smythe has skill with the needle. Perhaps he will run up a bag for us. Then we're agreed, Jeremy said. He took a deep breath. Tonight, when Eustatia Weatherby arrives, we'll have our third and final wager signatories. Lord Blackenor shook his head. This conversation cannot now be revoked. As the secretary of the Suicide Club, I must accept the terms. Well, of course you must, said Velvine. Insane scheming was the reason the club was set up. And voila, I shall keep these three wager papers, said Sir Hosley, which I remind you all are legally binding. I shall enjoy disseminating the terms to every member of our club. He stared at Jeremy, his face set firm and cold. I am the treasurer, after all. Damn. Jeremy had from the moment forgotten that, but Lord Blackenor, despite being a darkie, was reliable. Jeremy felt safe. Cornucope sent for a runner to fetch his wife. Two hours later, as they smoked their cigaroons and drank hot porter, Jeremy heard the lugubrious bellow of the Nepalese temple trumpet that signaled the presence of a woman. Some of the gentlemen departed the dining room, dark expressions on their faces, and then Eustatia appeared, led by an Hindu runner, her head covered in a blue bag embroidered with Chinese silk birds and pearls. Dearest one, Cornucope exclaimed, outlining the terms of the wager, then explaining the significance of the men at the table. He concluded, this is surely a test of our marriage that we cannot ignore. Sign, if you will. And Eustatia Weatherby signed. She said nothing. Jeremy, who had only met her at masked balls, shrugged and tried to outstare Sir Hosley. He failed.